good morning. Welcome. We're glad to hear you. Can you hear this thing? Yep. Something with it. It's over here. Can you hear me now? Hello? Hello, Mom. Am I coming in clear? Hello? Do something with it? Zach's giving me hand signals back here, and I got no idea what they mean. I don't know. Do what? Is that better? Pull it away from my face. Okay. Okay. Everybody good now? Holy cow. We're going to be here all day. Okay. All right. If you're uh, new here with us, uh, we're glad you're with us, as Tim said. Um, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll get one to you. The lovely uh, Pastor Mike there will get one to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your lap as we study God's Word today. As Tim said, we're going to be in Daniel, continuing on our study through the book of Daniel and uh, looking at counterculture and how Daniel was absolutely about counterculture and going against the culture. And what is really under attack right now is the Word of God. The Word of God is constantly under attack. It is the truth and accuracy of God's Word specifically under attack. Daniel 11 is a chapter that contains one of, if not the most accurately fulfilled prophecies or section of prophecies in the Bible. Uh, roughly 135 prophecies are fulfilled in Daniel 11 to the letter, exactly as he said they would. Now that sounds, oh, that's neat and all, that's really cool, great. You know, he did. Daniel recorded this from the angel some 400 years before it took place. So much so that, again, a lot of naysayers, if you will, really... Um, go against what God's word says. And there's no way, there's absolutely no way that this could have been written down with the accuracy and detail that it was because it was so accurate. They're like, this, this had to happen. This, this writing was not Daniel at all. It had to happen after the fact because of the accuracy of the events that took place. Um, and some of you guys can relate to that. If you Somebody tries to say, hey, what'd you do? What'd you do? You know, you're going to go to work tomorrow maybe, you know. Hey, what'd you do over the weekend? You tell your story. Well, you know, I remember what I did yesterday, you know. This was written down with 100% accuracy. And it's really uh, awesome what we're going to look at this morning. Christ himself even says that if we seek the truth, the truth will set us free. That's in John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if... You abide in my word. Notice it's a conditional statement. If, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So I titled the message, The Absolute Truth and Accuracy of God's Word. And I actually had more to the title. It's really in a relative world because so much so, it's what is truth to you, you know? Oh, that's not truth to me because it doesn't, it doesn't fit in my realm of truth. That's truth to you, but no, this is not truth over here. This is truth over here. So we're going to look at a lot of that this morning. So stand with me, if you will. We're going to read the first few verses here in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 and, and verse 1. Also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Notice verse 2, and now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than all than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all 
against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he is risen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity or his descendants or offspring, nor according to his dominion, which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Uh, pray with me one more time and we'll get into God's word. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you, uh, Lord, that we get to study your word. We get to have your word in our laps today as we read it, as we go through it, Father God. And I just pray for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon our lives, Lord, that you would uh, open our hearts to hear from your word, Lord, that you would take away any distractions, Father God, anything that would hinder us from hearing your word and allowing your word to penetrate our lives today, Lord. Father, I pray that your word will move us toward application in our lives, not just hearing your word, not just hearing stories, not just hearing about history today, Father God, but taking your word, Lord, and applying it to our very lives. Change us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice again, verse 2. Uh, as, we go through, uh, as we go through this, a lot of Daniel 11 is, again, it's history for us. But as he was recording this from the angel, again, this, is, this was being foretold, future telling, some 400 years ahead. Notice he says in verse 2, and now I will tell you the truth. Again, truth is lacking a lot in our culture these days. Absolute truth, God's word. Well, how do you know that God's word is the absolute truth? How do we, how do we know that? How do you know that? I mean, there's so many people today that say, well, there's, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Anybody, have you ever had anybody tell you that? There's no such thing as absolute truth. I, I kind of, I'm kind of a smart butt at times, and um, I usually respond with that, you know, well, is that statement true? And, you know, you just watch people's reaction when you say that to them. It's just funny. I don't know. I like to mess with people. You know, so if there's no such thing as absolute truth, how can what you just said is be true? Well, that's because it's true for you. It's relative to them. It's relative in their area, in their realm. So, whoa. So, is the Bible true? And I, um, about 20 years ago, I had a pastor uh, walk us through this, uh, this sermon on how to remember if the Bible is true or not. And he gave this acronym. It's called a, it's a champion, C-H-A-M-P-I-O-N, champion. Okay, you can write that down, champion. Number one, so first and foremost, C, it, it claims to be the word of God. It claims to be the truth. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and life. Jesus said that. I am the truth. So the Bible claims to be true. So that's C. H, there is historical evidence, which we're going to look into a lot this morning, historical evidence. You know, uh, a lot of different religions and world religions, things, they are seriously lacking historical evidence. When we look at this, we're, gonna, we're, we're looking back at what happened in chapter 11 of Daniel. But again, you can go read this stuff in your history books, okay? In your history books, you can see a lot of this. Uh, the A in uh, champion is archaeological evidence. So there's archaeological evidence. That means you can go dig something up and actually find some of these things that people were talking about in Scripture. Archaeological evidence. You can really go to these places. They aren't fictitious. It's not Disneyland, okay? They're real. They actually exist. Okay. 
places that we read about in the Word of God. Them, there's manuscripts, archaeological digs. I mean, they have found ancient texts, parts and pieces of our scriptures that, guess what? They match exactly to what you're holding in your lap this morning. Exactly. They match. Prophetic. So C-H-A-M-P, prophetic. Prophecy. Uh, the, simply just the foretelling of future events. Again, we're going to see a lot of that this morning. The Bible is inspiring, the all-inspiring Word of God. It's inspiring. It inspires us. You see, for me, I grew up, you know, for me, the Bible was uh, um, a real snoozer. You know, I mean, I hated being dragged to church. You know, I mean, since the time I was a baby and sleeping on my mom's lap in the pew, I mean, I just couldn't stand going to church, you know. And at the time, it was because I really had no idea that the Bible contained the living, breathing word written for me, personally, written for me. We had, those, we had books, of, we had Bibles throughout our house. My dad was a, uh, a lay pastor in the church that we were in. And, um, you know, I mean, we had this, you know, the King James Version, a lot of thus, thou, and those things. You know, people don't even talk like that anymore, right? You know, the 1611 version of that stuff, you know. And you try to read that, you're like, man, I don't, I don't get it. I just, I just didn't understand it. I, I, you know, I didn't really hear or know the importance of who Jesus was. It wasn't really inspiring to me, you know. And uh, I tried reading it several times. You pick it up into Genesis, and usually by verse 2, I was, I was already asleep. And it wasn't until I came to a saving knowledge of who he was and entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ um, back in my college days, University of Alabama, roll tide, Mike. <laughs> As I read God's word, I started to read God's word, and he revealed himself to me through his word. That's when I discovered the real power of who he was. That's where I discovered the truth of who he was and what he said. You know, I read a more modern version. I was reading the NIV version, you know, the, the nearly inspired version. You know, I mean, it, it, was, it was more, you know, it's, it was a little more, you know, there's some things, there's some stuff wrong with that. But anyway, it was, it was written in, like, modern-day English, you know. And I was like, whoa, this is, what, this is what God really is saying to me? Man, and it was, it was awesome. I really began to understand God's love for me. I really be, began to understand what God's word was and how it became inspiring to me. It gave me peace. It gave me encouragement exactly when I, when I needed it. And when I was going to get married, you know, my, my future wife at the time, Sarah, she's still my wife, okay? Um, and uh, we, we searched the scriptures, we searched scriptures, and we went for counseling to find out what the Bible said about marriage. Okay, what does the Bible say about marriage? We want our marriage to be centered around what God says, not what man says. What does God say about it? Because, again, we're talking about the truth of God's word. When we got pregnant for the first time, you know, we, we searched scriptures for what did, what did God say in his word about parenting? God always had a heart. You know, he always gave us a heart for children. Um, you, you guys, a lot of us, you know, we have, we have a lot of children. We have eight children. And from the time we first met, before we got married, we talked about children and having children. And we always desired in our hearts to have a lot of children. Well, when we, we first got pregnant, we lost our first pregnancy due to a miscarriage. We're like, God, what are you doing? 
I mean, actually, we, we, are, you know, we, we didn't seek him like we probably should have. It was like more like shaking our feet. God, what are you doing? Yet, when we dug into his word, we found peace through his word that he was in complete control of our lives. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. I mean, we, my wife had released that song. I forgot who sings it, but it's beautiful. This is in the song, you know, and we, she played this through our, through our home for, I mean, months, weeks on end, you know, after this, we were going, we were walking through this. We're like, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, I mean, again, several pregnancies later, looking back on this, we're like, wow, I mean, we have eight amazing children, and we've walked through not just one, but several, several miscarriages and things throughout our lives along the way, you know. And I still cannot express to you enough how impeccable God's timing and plan is for your life. If you will just seek him for it. When I began to serve in the body of Christ, you know, again, being inspired to serve and looking in God's word about being a servant and leader, you know, I looked into his word for wisdom and strength. Where, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go except for to his word? We have to go to his word. And I realized that, you know what, it has nothing to do with me or my abilities. You see, it is a sheer miracle that I'm standing up here in front of you because I am petrified of public speaking. I can't, I can't stand it. Petrified of it. God did that. God did that. And he overcame that in me and allowed this to take place. He, he does that. It's amazing what he will do. And again, in today's world, against the backdrop of over and over in the grim headlines in, in our news, hopelessness that we see going on around our country and around the world, you know what? I find hope on the pages of Scripture. I find hope in the pages of of God's word, and I find joy that sustains me in my own personal weakness, in my own personal flesh, inspired by that. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, probably my all-time favorite verse here is verse 12. It's, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible is absolutely alive and active. But you've got to read it. You've got to get into it. You've got to study it on your own. If all you're doing is relying on a, a sermon on Sunday mornings, man, you're, you're starving yourself, Christian. You're starving yourself. Get into God's word. Be inspired by it. So that was I. Oh, the Bible is also ongoing. Uh, hasn't stopped. There's been several attempts throughout history to wipe out the word of God. All of them, of course, unsuccessful. And the word of God is never ending. We're going to look into a lot of that this morning. God's word is eternal. It speaks of eternal, never ending events. From the very beginning of time, all the way through these places, these events and things that will take place. We're going to look at all these different themes and stuff this morning. God's word is never ending. John 1, uh, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word 
was God. He was in the beginning with God. He has always existed. Always. And in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So wow, that's just the first few first few words of verse 2. Man, I hope you guys didn't have any plans yesterday. We're never going to finish this. Okay, so continuing on into verse 2, back in Daniel chapter 11. Three more kings are going to arise out of Persia. We're going to look into the history here, and we're going to start seeing the things that happen with these kings and these battles that take place. Simply put, the angel told Daniel that there's going to be more kings in Persia that come out, a fourth one as well that's going to arise, and he's going to be stronger and richer than any of them. And this was fulfilled in the Persian king Xerxes. Again, world history, you know, I could not stand world history, okay? Even my professor, my, my world history professor in college said he didn't even like world history, okay? Can I tell you, that's how exciting it is, all right? You know, okay? World history. We're going to look into a lot of this this morning. But to me, again, being inspired by God's word and seeing the excitement of God's word because this was written 400 years before it happened and recorded with extreme detail. Again, just to show us, I think, just, to, just for God to show us who he is. Just to show us how awesome he is. So we're going to see this rise of this mighty king. Look at verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. This mighty king, uh, this angel told Daniel, a mighty king with great dominion is going to come out and be, and he'll, he'll, it's gonna, his dominion is going to rise. But his kingdom would not endure. It will be broken up over time. It says there, and he's going to rule with great dominion, it says in verse 3. This was fulfilled through Alexander the Great. Some of you guys are probably having world history flashbacks right now. I don't know this guy. Okay, yeah. Okay. Alexander the Great is this mighty king that was predicted was going to come along and rise up. And through his posterity, you know, his, his descendants, all that kind of stuff, after he died, none of his descendants succeeded him. None of them did. They all were broken up and divided to these other uh, four generals that ended up controlling the Greek Empire. And the rest of the prophecies are going to focus on two out of these four uh, inheritors of Alexander the Great's realm or his, his kingdom that was established. And really only two of them are going to be focused on here. Basically, we're, we're going to see through, throughout this text uh, the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And there's not a whole lot of talk about the ones on the east and west because they didn't really get into the mix a whole lot, if you will. The, the, the kings from the north and the kings from the south, I mean... Man, if you guys thought the Hatfields and McCoys was bad, this is, man, this is, this is ugly. Same thing. Like, our, our Civil War, you know, that took place on our soil, you know, we're like, man, that, that, is, that was phenomenal. Our Civil War, anybody remember? How long did our Civil War take place? Man, it's a history lesson. About four years, okay? None of you know. It's okay. So about four years. Our, our own Civil War took place about four years. This Civil War lasted over 100, Okay. This civil war, we're going to look at about 130 years total with all these different kings we're going to look at this morning. Again, just after four years in our country, we're like, eh, we're done, we're good, you know. And, you know, the Confederate Army surrendered in, um, in Virginia. Look at the strength now in verse 5 of the, the king of the south. Look at verse 5. Also, the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So one of the four inheritors of 
Alexander the Great's kingdom will become greater than all of them. This was fulfilled in Ptolemy, Ptolemy I out of Egypt. And he exerted power over the Holy Land. And this is where we're going to start seeing the, the battle between the south and the north uh, start to develop. So the Ptolemies were pretty much of the southern realm. And then the Seleucians, or uh, the Seleucus, uh, this, this prince that came out of Ptolemy I, uh, who rose to power, he took dominion over the area of Syria, the northern region. Okay, so the stage is being set here between the Seleucids, who were the kings of the north, and the Ptolemies over the kings of the south. And they go into this epic battle for um, roughly 130 or so years. So this is where history really gets interesting as we go on and look into our study here. Don't forget the incredible precision and accuracy that was written down. Keep in the back of your mind, this was written about 375 years before it took place. That would be my, like me telling you something that's going to happen 400 years from now. And with extreme detail, it comes to pass. And again, that's why Daniel 11, I mean, most critics try to debunk, you know, the, the writings of Daniel because there's no, it's, there's no way he could have written it down. There's no way he could have known this. Well, if you can hold, you can hold to that truth, if you will, you know, if it's relative to you, or you can really believe what God said and understand that he is outside of time. So he absolutely could have told the angel to tell Daniel exactly what to write down. So look at verse 6. We're going to see some things get interesting here with um, the, the battle here between the, the south and the north. Look at verse 6. And at the end of some years, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an arrangement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up uh, with those who brought her and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. So they're going to join forces here. This is kind of like an arranged marriage, if you will, between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. You know, this, again, was fulfilled with extreme precision. Well, there's a little bit of problem here, okay? <laughs> the king of the north at this time was already married, how is this going to take place, and how is this going to be fulfilled? He's already married. Well, the king of the south does exactly what Scripture says, and his daughter Bernice of uh, Ptolemy II takes, <laughs> takes her to the northern king, and they arrange this marriage. And he dumps his wife and marries the daughter of the king of the south. I mean, this is recorded in world history. Can you predict that? I mean, can you predict what's going to happen to that? I mean, think about that for a minute. These eventual, these, these events and stuff, they actually took place. They actually took place. These are actual people. They actually took place, and they match Daniel 11 precisely. And that's why uh, a lot of naysayers about, you know, divine inspired writing of the Bible, they're like, There's, there is no way he could have known that's going to happen. I mean, the guy was already married. How is that going to happen? Oh, yeah. You change mic? Oh, yeah. This thing is just... Oh, good. Praise the Lord. Okay. Okay. Awesome. 
We now to our return to our regular scheduled program. Okay, all right. So this this all sounds you know easy to predict you know to predict and stuff. You know, one minor detail. You know, when the marriage taking place, Antiochus the second of the North, he was already married. I mean, so he dumps his wife, marries Bernice, which is from Ptolemy the second of the South. I mean, seriously, how could that happen? If you think about that for a minute, how could that happen? Well, again, God God is outside of time. I mean, he knows the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So he recorded this with extreme precision. But she shall not retain the power of her authority. So as we, again, Scripture unfolds, history unfolds, Ptolemy II of the South died. Shortly after that, guess what? Antiochus II of the North, he dumps Bernice. <laughs> Marries his first wife again. <laughs> this is some real Jerry Springer stuff right here, okay? I mean, this is, okay? This is getting into it right here, you know? I mean, man, some of you guys are too, too young to remember Jerry Springer, but, you know. Anyway, so <laughs> Antiochus II, you know, it doesn't end there, you know. She didn't trust her husband anymore. <laughs> Shocking, right? Okay? Who would? So much so that she had him poisoned, killed him. Man, she was not good with episode one. This is Jerry Springer episode two and three and four, okay? Not only that, she killed Bernice. And she also killed Bernice's offspring. A little bit upset. A little bit. <laughs> this is written in your world history books, recorded by Daniel from what the angel told him some 400 years before it happened. So she wasn't content with all that stuff. Brings us all back, you know. And then after this reign of terror, Laodicea, which is his first wife, um, her son Seleucus II is now on the throne at this time over the Syrian dominion, the northern dominion. So again, peace doesn't last very long. Look at verse 7. Peace never lasted very long at any of these times. Verse 7, but from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place, who shall come with an army into the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. So he's going to come with this army. Daniel told them that the branch of her roots coming from the south is going to prevail. Now, I don't know. I mean, some of you guys, you guys have probably seen the movie Back to the Future, right? Okay, you remember that? Doc Brown, all that kind of stuff, right? You, you remember that one? Like, I think it was the, uh, the second part two, okay, right? You know, and... Back, they go back in history, and Doc, Doc Brown takes that sports almanac thing, right? And then, you know, he gets it. He's like, yeah, I'll just do a little bit of gambling on the side. You know, no harm, no foul, right? You know? And he's going to predict the future sporting events, right? Well, you guys know how it all take, gets in the wrong, gets in Biff's hands, you know? And Biff messes it all up, you know, and changes history by becoming extremely wealthy in this whole offshoot timeline kind of thing. We're reading Daniel 11 this morning that was written 400 years before these events took place. Could you imagine if some of these kings would have read this stuff? Can you imagine if they would have read it and understand that it was talking about them? I mean, that's just bizarre to me. And I thought about that. I was studying through this. I'm like, man, they, they had the sports almanac in their hands. <laughs> would you go to battle if it was written that you knew you were going to lose? <laughs> Like, these guys don't get it, you know? I mean, wow. We see this unfold before their very eyes. 
Notice again, verse 7. They're going to enter the fortress of the king of the north. They're going to deal with them and prevail. This was fulfilled again with extreme precision and accuracy. Ptolemy III is now on the scene, who is the brother of Bernice. Yeah, see, Laodicea forgot that one. You know, in her little rage of revenge, you know what I'm saying? She, you know, tried to avenge the murder of her sister and all these kind of things. They invade Syria. Again, you guys thought the Hatfields and McCoys feud was bad. I mean, these guys are just at it. I mean, you see Ptolemy the first, the second, the third, and Seleucus the fourth. People wonder why history is so hard to understand and comprehend. I mean, seriously, can you not come up with a different name for these people? I mean, really. Seriously, I mean, we, we have eight kids. We didn't name them one, two, three, four, and five. I mean, I don't know. That's why we struggle with history a lot. Well, the same name. Look at uh, verse 10. Now we're going to see the sons of the kings of the north, and then they're going to have a victory. Again, back and forth with this battle. Verse 10, however, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a great multitude of forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, pass through Jerusalem. Again, the Holy Land is in the middle of all this. It's right between Syria, Egypt. It's right in the middle of all of this going on. The battle, <laughs> these guys are battling back and forth. Guess what? Every time they're doing this, they're still keeping reign and dominion over the Holy Land and over God's people. Notice it says they're going to go back through, overwhelm Jerusalem, and uh, shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. Again, continuing to stir up strife, assembling these great forces and these great military forces. Again, this is now fulfilled in Seleucus III and Antiochus III, battling back and forth. And the people wonder why history is so confusing. It's just a different name and a different number after it. But again, back and forth, some 130 years. Now we're going to look at this. The king of the north takes his occupation in, in over, over occupation of his glorious land. Again, Israel is right in the middle of all this, right in the battle. This is a lot of this vision that is taking place. For Daniel, it's a vision of future prophetic events. But for us, it's history. And we see it being unfolded exactly as it was written. And it's really, a lot of this is a precursor, as we're going to see, to the final battle that's going to take place in end time. Look at verse 13. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. So again, there's going to be a massive battle going on. The angel told Daniel that the northern dynasty would answer back and defeat the king of the south with, again, another extended siege, another war, another battle going on and victory would be given to them and they would have dominion over the holy land again over god's people no one it says in verse 16 no one shall stand against them again antiochus iii invaded egypt again getting final control over the holy land all of this again you can read in your history books and see it unfold exactly as daniel 11 was written the king of the north, now we're going to see in verse 17, the king of the north gives his daughter to the king of the south. Again, I don't know about you, but you know, I kind of saw something already like this happen. Didn't really work the first time. Why do you think it's going to work for you? So now we see the king of the north give up his daughter to the king of the south. Look at verse 17. 
He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. So we're going to see this attempt kind of blow up in his face, kind of backfire with what he thought was going to happen. He would make an attempt to destroy the king of the south uh, through this daughter of women, it says here. Uh, but it would not succeed. This is fulfilled when Antiochus III of the north gave his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V. Okay, ah, Cleopatra, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, right. History is starting to, cobwebs are starting to come off, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. Again, this is not the same famous Cleopatra that you recall from, again, your, your history books, if you remember that. This is a different Cleopatra. Again, pick different names, people. Seriously. Pick different names. What's wrong with you? Okay. Again, this is one of her descendants earlier on, about 100 years later. But again, pick different names. I hate these people off. The king of the north is stopped. Uh, verse 18. Um, notice it says, he shall turn him back. After a disappointing effort through his daughter Cleopatra, the king of the north, um, his efforts were stopped at the coastlands. Um, and he stumbles and falls, and he will not be found. So this is where... Um, this was fulfilled when Antiochus III turned his attention toward the areas of Asia Minor and Greece. Ne now, the Roman Empire was coming into power. Rome was coming into power in the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire actually came and stopped a lot of these things. Again, this is all written in history. And then this is where it starts to get interesting in verses 21 through 35. Um, see, Antiochus had plan to humiliate Greece, and but he was really the one who was humi humiliated instead through, through all this. He, I mean, he, he came and he, he lost that battle and then he died shortly after. And we're going to see this new person that comes on, on board in verse 21. Look, and in his place shall arise, notice it says, a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. So in his place, uh, this vile person arises, and Daniel's told, um, with the, the, again, this brief reign of the former king of the north, you know, now this vile person comes on the scene and sits in this place. You know, again, this was fulfilled by the successor of Seleucus III, named Antiochus IV. Again, he didn't come to the throne legitimately, but he came um, just as they said, through, he came in peaceably, again, apart from the murder of his brother, you know, he didn't use any terror, he didn't use any force to come into power. He used flattery, he used smooth promises and intrigue, you know, kind of like, you know, all the politicians do today, you know, vote just to get your vote, you know, whatever. They, they come in and yet they get in power and it's a different, different story. So this vile person comes in on the scene here. And uh, notice it says in verse 20, with the force of the flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken and also the prince of the covenant. In verse 23, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall come up and be strong with a small number of people. So he's going to act deceitfully. The angel is telling Daniel that this new king, this vile person that's coming up, he's going to act deceitfully. Again, deceitful, being lies and deceit, you know, again, opposite of what the word of God is and being the truth of what God says. He's going to work with deceit and lies. And again, another epic battle 
comes into play. In verse 25, it says, He shall stir up his power. And this is fulfilled when Antiochus Epiphanes carried on the feud between these two dynasties. And he started off by pretending to have a friendship and an alliance to kind of catch him off guard, right? Again, but despite massive efforts and all this kind of stuff, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, does not stand. His, ar- his armies were, were swept away again. This vile person, you know, he was defeated. Antiochus Epiphanes was defeated. And on his way back to the north, he takes out his rage on the Holy Land. It's kind of like, you know, you're in a football game, you know, and you lose. They go back and they destroy the locker room. What? You know, I don't know. This is what he does. No, notice it says, while returning in verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches. Okay, so he stole a bunch of stuff. He's going back. He lost the battle. His heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So he goes back, yet on his way back, while returning with all these great riches and stuff, Antiochus Epiphanes, this, this vile man, returned to his land Again, from the south, going back up to the north, going through Jerusalem, and he attacks the land, the people, the temple of Israel. And it, it was a really a great time of, I mean, treachery among the people of God because of he was such a vile, a vile person. He does this damage and really destroys the temple. Notice in verse 31, it says, They shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, this is not the abomination of desolation found in, in Revelation. This is a little different. Um, again, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes set up an image of Zeus inside the temple in Jerusalem, and he demanded people sacrifice, make sacrifices to this image. And then he also later desecrated the temple. He sacrificed pigs and s- splattered pig's blood all over the temple, just destro- destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, all because he's a little upset that he lost the battle, you know. Notice in verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people, and I love this, if this is not highlighted in your Bible, highlight this this section of 32, but the people who know their God shall be strong. You see, when Antiochus Epiphanes returned back up to Jerusalem, the, the Jewish people were already kind of divided, you know. Some were like, okay, you know, the, the, this Roman rule, everything is good, you know, we're, we're under the Roman, that's fine. But there were others, as it says here, the second part of verse 32, those who knew their God, they, they made a stand for the righteousness in face of this incredible persecution. And I'm not being prophetic or saying any of this has to do with the United States, but a lot of division in our country right now. A lot of lines are being drawn in the sand. What side are we on? Should we be on a side? Should we be Republicans? Should we be Democrats? Should we do this? Should we do that? Do you believe this? Do you not believe that? Stand on the word of God and you'll never go wrong. Stand on God's word and you'll never go wrong. Will you be persecuted? Absolutely. Will you be made fun of? Absolutely. But I'd rather stand on something that I know is absolute truth than stand on any platform of man. Stand on God's word. And again, things are going to get worse as we look just like in here in verse 32. Yet for many days, it says, they shall fall by the sword and plagues, by captivity and plundering. 
You see, when Antiochus Epiphanes, as he was going back through Jerusalem, he, it's said that he, it's recorded that he killed some 80,000 Jews. He took 40,000 more as prisoners and probably uh, somewhere around another 40,000 he sold as slaves. Plundered the temple, robbed it. Um, the, the things in the temple were, you know, all gold, high, high, all gold and all gold artifacts. I mean, some, some estimate that what he stole from the temple was roughly about a billion dollars in gold, according to our standards today. So he plunders the temple. And then look at verse 35. Until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. You see, this terror could only last for as long as God had appointed it. It could only go on as long as God had allowed it. God has a purpose for what he's doing in your life right now. God has a purpose for what he's allowing in your life right now. And maybe, oh, it's difficult, it's hard, it's, it's a tough world. Yeah, and I'm not going to try to sugarcoat any of that. It may be very difficult what you're walking through right now. But know this, that it is necessary for you to walk through it because on the outcome of it, you're going to be strengthened by it. That's why he allows these things and trials in our life. I mean, over and over and over again, the Jewish people, they're right in the middle of all of this. They're right in the middle of this battle between the north and the south. And over and over, I'm sure they, they were just strengthened. Like, yep, there comes another king. Whew, <laughs> whoa. Just about right on time, you know. Here comes another one. And you know what? Maybe you don't understand what God's doing. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I understand exactly what he's doing in my life right now. <laughs> But you know what? I trust what he's doing. I trust what he's doing because I know that he has plans for me. He has plans to prosper me, plans to give me a peace and a hope. He's not talking about financial gain and name it, claim it, stuff like that. He knows my life from beginning to end. No matter what's going on, I'm going to trust him. I trust that he has a plan for my life. And I hope that you can do that as well this morning. Trust him. Trust that he knows what he's doing in your life. Trust that he knows why you're going through certain things. He wants to grow you. He wants to strengthen you through this. And then we're going to see here in verse 36 to the end of the book here, it, we, we see a little bit of a shift takes place because it starts to talk about a future king and future fulfillment. So that's pretty much where you can draw a line in the book of Daniel at first between verses 35 and 36. Everything from up to verse 35 has already taken place. We can see it in history. But from 36 on, none of this has taken place, not to the detail that the, begin, the, the first part of the book. So we're going to look at this now, and this is talking about what's going to happen in the time to come. In verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. You can underline that. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. Did Antiochus Epiphanes do that? Not to the level that this is talking about. Because if you recall, when he went back through the Holy Land and took his rage out on losing, you know, Going back north with his you know, dog with his tail between his legs. He was mad. He took it out on Jerusalem. He didn't set up an image of himself. He set up an image of Zeus. 
okay? He didn't, this is where it says, again, this is where you see a shift between what was fulfilled between the Ptolemies of the south and the Seleucids of the north. The difference here is that this is talking about the Antichrist in the final end times, this final world dictator that's going to come on the scenes. Notice it says in verse 36 that he is going to be above every god. Okay, Antiochus Epiphanes did not fulfill this because, again, he, he did not do that. He, he, he put Zeus in that place. If this were different and history showed things differently, then he would have asked, he would have demanded that worship for himself, but he didn't, he didn't do that. And Daniel's being told that this is, this is all revelation that's pertaining to the later days. We looked at that a little bit last time in chapter 10, in uh, Daniel 10, verse 14. Daniel was told that things are, he's going to tell him about future events. Remember, he was preparing him through prayer to write all this down, okay? And he told him that there's going to be things that are coming in the future and things in the later days. And that's where we're at now, looking at what's going to happen in these later days. You see, Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, an image, really, of like a foreshadowing or a foretelling of what is really going to happen and kind of like a, a foretelling of what the Antichrist is really going to look like, this vile person that is going to come on the scene. You know, and there, there's going to be the uh, abomination of desolation that is set up. Matthew 24, verse 15. Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads this, let him understand. And the Apostle Paul also paraphrased Daniel 11 and verse 36 in reference to the coming Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. You see, Antiochus Epiphanes is very important, again, because he is a foretelling or a preview, foreshadowing of the Antichrist. But we did not see Antiochus Epiphanes do that. Okay? This is kind of like, you know, you go to the movies and you sit there for like two hours watching previews before the real show comes on. And we used to go to the movies. I don't know if anybody goes to the movies anymore. We used to go to the movies. And it's kind of like you know, talking about Jerry Springer. You guys, movies? What's that? You know, we used to go to movies, okay, right? And when you go to movies, they would have trailers and stuff of what's coming out, all the new things coming out, right? This, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes is kind of like the trailer of what's about to happen in the end times. You know, the feature is <laughs> the real film coming out. The real actor is, is going to be the Antichrist that is revealed. And again, Antiochus Epiphanes said, Certainly, you know, in a general sense, I mean, he had, he, he fulfilled a lot of these things, but he did not sit as God in, in the temple. Notice again, verse 4 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. He who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that, is he, that he is God. That is what the Antichrist is going to to do. And we're going to look at the character here as we wrap this up, looking at the character and the authority of this guy in verse 
37, or he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses and a God which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest forces with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. Again, all this, again, just foretelling of what is going to happen. The Antichrist is going to take hold of power with military might. Um, again, tons of riches and wealth are going to be in his possession as we see a lot of these things. The final conflict with this northern king that's going to come up, and a lot of people believe that it is going to be a northern king coming out of the northern area there, maybe Syria, Russia, you know, somewhere that maybe of Jewish descent, somewhere in that area is going to be maybe where the Antichrist is coming from. Again, there's a lot, you know, hasn't happened yet, so, so we don't know for sure. But look at verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. Uh, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and prominent people of Ammon. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over the, all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. So in the end, Daniel is writing down and describing everything the angel is telling him of what is going to take place. This Confederation of kings is going to arise and come against this great leader, you know, and the battle is going to take place in the Holy Land. The king of the south, again, maybe, you know, uh, some, some people believe is going to come up out of Egypt, maybe out of the Arab nations, um, you know, maybe out of the Arab community, the battle against this king of the north, you know, the area of Russia, Syria. I mean, if you guys open your Bible and watch the evening news <laughs> and see what is going on, Man, guys, we are so close to this stuff taking place. So close to what is going on in our world today. And again, a lot of people, ah, no, it's not this, not that. You know, naysayers, again, about what's going on. The general idea here is, is clear. I mean, this great conflict is going to be a conflict that takes place that has never been seen before. Countries. Tons of countries, massive armies, massive amounts of wealth and military might coming together to culminate this, this final battle. A lot of people believe China will be involved. I mean, China just a few weeks ago said that they have 200 million people in their army that they could dispatch within about a month. 200 million. Does that sound like a big battle to you? size of a battle that Daniel had no idea. There wasn't even that many people on the planet in Daniel's time. Yet, 
now we have over 7 billion people on the planet. But the stage is being set. The time is being set. God's word is going to come to pass. Period. God's word is going to come to pass. All of these things were written so that we may know. So that we may know. So that we won't lose hope. So that we won't... Guys, if, if you're fearful of what is going on, stop. Stop. We have a hope that we can offer the people because we know the end from the beginning. We see it in Scripture. We already know the outcome. You guys have the sports almanac in your laps this morning. Okay? <laughs> now, I'm not a gambling person, but you can gamble on that one, okay? It's going to come to pass. It's going to happen. We've seen this morning 135 different foretelling, foreshadowing things, prophecies that took place with incredible accuracy that you can see throughout world history. Pull out your history books. Look this stuff up. Don't take my word for it. Do Dig into it. Research it. Look, look it up. Wipe the dust off your history book. You know, it's probably on those pages that have the, the wrinkled, like, warped look like it's, it's waterlogged. That's because there was drool on it when you were sleeping during world history. Okay? Just wipe that off and look at this stuff. That's exactly what happened. And it's going to come to pass. We have the absolute truth of this. Impeccable accuracy of God's word. So I hope you saw today, again, through this little bit of a history lesson, you know, how inc incredibly accurate and precise God's word is. And I hope you can also see that, you know what, we can rely on him. We can trust him. We can trust his plan. Even though you don't understand what he's doing in your life right now, we can trust him with it. We can trust him at his word. Again, John 8, 31 and 32, I'll close with this. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if, again, it's a conditional statement, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. That word abide, in verse 31, you can highlight that, underline that. That word means to continue, to dwell, to endure, to remain. Abide in his word. Remain in his word. No matter how crazy things get, he's still on the throne. He's still in control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. Father, we thank you that you are in control. Father, we thank you that you told us the beginning from the end. Father, we thank you that there are no lies within you. We can take what you say for your word to be absolute, impeccable truth. Stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. We stand on what your word tells us. Father, even though we may not understand everything you that you're doing in our lives right now, Lord, we, we trust what you're doing, Father God, and we trust your plan for our lives. Lord, I just pray that you would pour out your spirit upon every person here today. Lord, as we go out, Lord, we can take your word. Lord, we can be inspired by your word as we study it, as we read it, as we open it up, Lord, and, and, and learn more about your character, about who you are and how much, Lord, you love us. Thank you again for your word today. 
we do, do this today as we go out into the mission field, into our workplaces, into our neighborhoods, into our homes. Lord, just fill us with your spirit, Lord, to minister to the lowest around us. In Jesus' name, amen.